Good morning. It's always a privilege to be able to bring uh, the word to the church, but it's also a little terrifying. Considering the fact that this is the word of God, and if, if we preach and teach accurately, it's as though God is speaking through us, and that should be intimidating. Thankful for the church, and uh, just pray with me uh, before we begin, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning to worship you, to sing your praises, and to learn from your word. Pray that you would open our eyes to truth, and that you would apply it to our hearts in order to transform us into greater Christ-likeness, to prepare us to be in your presence to bring greater glory to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So I was talking to Brad Barnes before uh, the service got started, <clears throat> and I was telling him what I was going to be preaching on this morning, and he said because of the big idea here that I should have played Bob Marley's song as an intro don't worry about a thing because every little thing going to be all right. He said, if I did that, I could get disciplined out of the church. <laughs> so, I don't know how many of you have ever suffered from anxiety or been worried about some issue, some circumstance, or some person in your life, but I'm guessing that most of you have, if not all of you. And if we're honest, we've all worried about something at some point in time. Maybe you're worrying about something right now. I'm worried a little bit about bringing this sermon. It's entirely possible that you're worried about something because it would seem that there's lots to worry about out there in the world. There's war in Europe. There's war in Israel. China is threatening to invade Taiwan. Cost of living is making it harder to pay our bills. Maybe you're worried about your health because you're getting older, everything's breaking down, or you've had a recent serious medical condition diagnosed. Maybe you have anxiety over losing your job. You're a first-year teacher, and you might get pink-slipped. Maybe you worry about your children who struggle socially or academically, or maybe they're not following the Lord. What's going to become of them? If you're single, you may worry, will I ever get married? If you're married, you may worry, will my spouse always love me? Will they always be faithful to me? Will they die before me and leave me alone? You may worry about your financial future. Will I have enough money to retire on? Should I retire? Or maybe you worry about relationships why didn't Susie say hi to me this morning? Was it something I said? Is she mad at me? Or maybe you worry about really silly things like how many likes you'll get on your most recent Facebook post. And on and on and on. There are so many things that we worry about. Some of them are serious. Some of them aren't so serious. But what is worry? What is anxiety? And we're going to use those words interchangeably because they are synonymous Worry is a feeling of unease, nervousness, dread, or fear, and it's typically about some impending event or something with an uncertain outcome. Usually, we worry about things that we have little or no control over, or we worry and stress about things that are in the far distant or imagined future. Worry is a serious problem in this country. <clears throat> Last year, 32% of the population reported experiencing anxiety and anxiety-related depression. And that's just the reported data. Anxiety is widespread. And it can have serious physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences. Excessive worry can actually damage your health. And I found this short list of problems caused by worry on the Mayo Clinic website. It can cause digestive or 
bowel problems, such as irritable bowel syndrome or ulcers. It's probably a little bit too much information. Headaches, migraines, chronic pain, illness, sleep problems, and insomnia, and it can damage your heart, heart health issues. Worry can also lead to depression, can paralyze you to the point of inaction. In fact, our English word, worry, is derived from a German word that means to strangle. And that's what worry does. It strangles us. It chokes our motivation and our ability to move forward and take action. And it's all because we're so busy planning and fretting over all the possible things that could go wrong in the future that we don't do anything. Our minds become preoccupied and overwhelmed with a never-ending list of possibilities and contingencies. Our emotions are continually troubled and paralyzed with fear. Our desires are cut short or stifled in order to avoid any possible or imagined danger or negative outcome. And all of this freezes our will and ability to move forward and take action. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. And Corey Ten Boom, a Holocaust survivor, said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It only empties today of its strength. Anxiety is debilitating. And it's not just some 21st century problem. It's always been a problem. It was a problem 2,000 years ago. And that's why Jesus addresses worry repeatedly in the Gospels. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34, if you want to turn there. And in this text, Jesus commands his disciples, he commands us not to be anxious, not to worry, not to fear. And then he gives us reasons why we don't have to be worried. That's the correction to our worrying. He reveals the cause of our anxiety, our worry. And he provides the cure for anxiety. Now, we, we do need to know what's going on in the section just before our text. That's back in verses 13 through 21, because the parable that Jesus shares with the disciples is related to, and it sets a stage for our text. So the first thing Jesus does is he warns against coveting material possessions in verse 15, because he says that having a bunch of stuff, an abundance of possessions, is not what life is about. And then he gives this example of the foolish farmer who focused on acquiring more and more grain and goods and filled up his barns to the point that he thought, now I can lay back, not gonna, I can retire, I can relax, I don't have to work anymore, I can go fishing, I can golf, I can hang out at the beach. But little did he know that the day that he stopped pursuing and acquiring all that stuff, God would require his soul. He would die. It's verse 20. All that work for nothing, all of his time and effort invested in something that was temporary, that wouldn't last, that he would never enjoy or benefit from, and he invested nothing in eternity. Nothing was invested in the things of God. He was not rich towards God. And then Jesus goes on, and this is our text this morning, verses 22 through 34, if you want to read along with me. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? 
And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world. Seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, the first thing that needs to be said about this passage is that this is for believers, which is true of the vast majority of Scripture. It's for those who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, the commands, the instructions, the examples that are given, the rebukes, the assurances, and the promises are for believers. Because only believers are disciples of Jesus. Only believers have God as their Father. Only believers are in the flock of Jesus and can call him our good shepherd, and only believers will inherit the kingdom of God, and only believers can lay up treasure in heaven. It's not a text for unbelievers. So if you have not turned from going your own way, and if you haven't turned from sin and unbelief and trusted in Christ alone in his death on the cross, to pay the penalty for your sin, I would urge you to do that today. Today is the day of salvation. Because just like the farmer in this parable, you have no idea what day will be your last. You have no idea when God will require your soul. So humble yourself at the foot of the cross. Put your faith in Christ. Turn from working for yourself and trying to Earn your way into heaven. Trust in the finished work of Christ and submit to him as Lord of your life so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be reconciled to God, adopted into his family and cared for by an all-powerful, good, gracious, merciful, and loving Father. Do that today. If you're a believer, if you have trusted and are following Christ then this text, the words of Jesus, are for you. And the first thing that Jesus says in verse 22 is, therefore, and that word therefore connects what he has just said in the parable of the foolish farmer with what he's about to say in this text. In other words, because you can see that this farmer had a misguided, sinful focus. In fact, he was a fool for laying up treasure on earth and not in heaven. Therefore, this is how you need to reorient your thinking. This is how you need to be focused. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to live your life. Therefore, don't be like the farmer. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about your life, and that's not a suggestion, it's a command. He's not saying that you shouldn't plan for the future or have reasonable concern about providing for your needs, but don't worry, don't be anxious, don't be consumed and paralyzed with fear over these things. And the word that's translated as life here is the same word for soul back in verse 20, and it refers to more than just the physical aspects of who we are, but it encompasses our intellect, our emotions, our will, our nature, our heart, really all that we are as we are created in the image of God, as image bearers of God. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or wear, because life is much more than just those physical needs. This is really about getting our priorities straight. Life is more than physical, temporary needs of the moment because we are more than just physical beings, unlike the animals in creation. We're created in the image of God, which means that we are also spiritual beings, and our priorities need to be focused primarily on the spiritual aspects of who we are. We need to be focused on those things that have eternal significance, the spiritual aspects of life. Now, in some ways, 
this text may be a little bit difficult for us to relate to in our modern Western affluent culture. Very few of us have to worry about where the next meal is going to come from. Very few of us have to worry about what clothes or if we're going to have clothes to wear. And if we ever do get to that point, there are numerous government and social programs to help meet those needs. If you're a believer, the church is there to step in and help. In most cases, we have too much food, too many choices, too large a serving of meat and potatoes, too many clothing options, multiple pairs of shoes, and a closet full of clothes. But that was not the case back in the first century. Back then, most people did walk a fine line between life and death, between the next meal and starvation. Most men only had two tunics, two shirts, and one pair of sandals if they were lucky. So just to make a point here, I already know the answer. How many of you, men or women, have only one pair of shoes, which would be the ones that you're wearing, and one shirt or maybe dress hanging in the closet? Anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. Most of us have more than enough. But life in the first century was hard, and the necessities were scarce. The principle's the same, though. If Jesus had to command these disciples, the first century believers, who for the most part, part had legitimate concerns over meeting basic needs, how much more does this apply to us? For the most part, they lived in poverty, and yet they were commanded not to be anxious about food and clothing because even for them, living in poverty, life was more than just meeting those physical needs. With us on the opposite end of the abundance spectrum, generally having more than enough, even though we don't suffer with the same concern over meeting basic needs, people today worry about so many things. Relationships, jobs, health, safety, making more money, having the latest fashions, having bigger and better home, car, and on and on. Jesus is clear, life is not about these temporary things. Life is not about having more stuff, so stop worrying about those things. Don't be anxious. Jesus doesn't just command the disciples not to worry about food and clothing and leave it at that. He's not unsympathetic. He doesn't hammer the disciples. He's not harsh with them. He understands their frailty and their concerns. So he goes on to explain to them and to us why we don't have to be anxious or worry about our temporary material needs and based on the rest of Scripture, why we don't have to worry about anything. Jesus provides the correction to our anxiety. And the first thing he does, he turns our attention to a couple of examples in nature, birds and flowers, and he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater concerning food. He says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. He doesn't say Think about the beautiful songbirds that are out there or the birds that Israel might use for food. Think about these unattractive, squawking, annoying ravens, death birds, as my wife calls them. <laughs> Think about these carrion eaters, these birds that under Mosaic law were considered detestable and unclean. Consider that unlike the foolish farmer, you're never going to see a raven out plowing a field or pulling weeds or gathering up the crops to store in a barn because God feeds them. Now, ravens will be out looking for food. You see them on the side of the road all the time. But God provides it for these roadkill-eating, detestable, unclean birds. God feeds them. He takes care of them. Psalm 147, 9 says, He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. God provides 
for them. And then Jesus asked the question of how much more value are you than the birds? Of how much more value are you than these unclean, detestable ravens? And the answer to that should be obvious. There's no comparison in value. You're an image bearer of God. And remember, this is written to believers, so not only are you an image bearer of God, but you have been redeemed. You've been reconciled to God. You've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God. You're a child of God, and God is your Father. The contrast is in value is practically infinite. So it should be clear, there should be no doubt, you should be absolutely certain that God, your heavenly Father, will provide for your needs. And then Jesus stresses that worry, being anxious about these lesser material things, is absolutely futile. It's pointless. It's useless. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And the Greek word that's translated here as single hour is actually cubit. That was a measurement of about 18 inches. And some translations have this as, and which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Well, whether or not it's saying, can you add a cubit to your stature or an hour to your life, the point is, you can't do either one, and you certainly can't do either one by worrying about it. You can't do it. It's never going to happen. So stop it. Stop worrying about these things. Don't waste your time, your energy. Don't worry. This is, a, this is an area where our culture has really become obsessed. We're obsessed with longevity. We become obsessed with health and fitness, living healthier, longer lives. It's become a billion-dollar industry. We make sure we eat the right foods. We go to the gym. We try not to eat the wrong foods. Some of us check the ingredients on our foods to make sure there's no harmful additives that might give us cancer or something else. I just learned a few weeks ago that there's an app you can download that allows you to scan the barcode on different food items and it'll rate the food on a scale from zero to 100 and then tell you whether or not it's good or bad for you. Anybody have that app? Anybody use it? Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) Be honest. So here's what I did. I got this from my son-in-law. Thanks a lot. (laughs) I scanned a few things in our freezer and refrigerator, and I discovered that Liz and I should be dead. Because <laughs> we're eating poison, like every day. So, now wait for it. I decided that the best thing to do was get rid of that app. <laughs> Don't use it. Anyway, many people spend massive amounts of money. Maybe we do too. We spend a lot on vitamins and minerals and things like that. Lots of money on supplements, vitamins, minerals, gym memberships that they never use, fad diets, various medical treatments that promise to improve and extend your life. But guess what? Nothing you can do. Nothing. None of those promised benefits can add a single moment to your life, not a single second to the length of your life, because God has determined in eternity past exactly how long you will live. And the very moment and cause of your death, you can't change what the Lord has already determined. Job, speaking about man, says in Job 14, 5, since his days are determined, man's days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, God, 
And you, God, have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. God has determined the length of our days, exactly how long we'll live. We can't add a single moment by anything that we do or don't do, by anything that we eat or don't eat. So why worry? In fact, let's all go get pizza, fried chicken, ice cream for lunch today. No, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be wise, disciplined, and diligent in what we eat and how we live our lives. You should be. But God has already determined the exact moment of your death, so stop worrying about it. It's not going to change anything. And then Jesus goes on to say that if by worrying you can't do something as insignificant as add an hour to your life, then why in the world would you worry about all of those other things that you have absolutely no control over? You have no control over whether you're going to get the job that you apply for. You have no control over whether some guy will ask you to marry him or whether the girl you ask will say yes. You have no control over what will happen when your kids leave the house in the morning or when they move into their own apartment. You have no control over how people will respond to you, whether they will love you or hate you. You have no control over whether you will get cancer or be diagnosed with a heart condition or get smashed up in a car wreck. You have no control over those things. God is sovereign. He is ultimately control, in control of everything down to the very last detail. A little over 20 years ago, <clears throat> I was diagnosed with late-stage colon cancer that had metastasized in my lymph system. And while I was awaiting surgery, my oncologist, Dr. Cartmel, who some of you know, he's a believer, he came to pre-op and he prayed with me. And then when we were done praying, he said, here's the deal, Mike. We can cut this cancer out. We can treat it with hormone therapy, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, but we cannot heal you. Only God can heal you. And if God has determined that you will recover from this cancer, that you will be healed, you'll be healed. And if he has determined that you will not be healed, if he has determined that you are going to die from this cancer, then nothing that we do will make a difference because God is sovereign. That sounds a little bit harsh, but it was comforting. God's sovereign, and he's good. He knows what's best. God declares the end from the beginning. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He directs our steps. He kills and makes alive. And the bottom line here is that worry can't prolong your life. Can't contribute anything positive to your life. Worry has absolutely no impact or influence. The only thing it does is make you sick and miserable. So worry is pointless. Then Jesus uses a, another example from nature to instruct us. He, he tells his disciples to think about the lilies or the wildflowers that cover the fields. Consider the lilies or wildflowers, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon... In all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Flowers don't work. They aren't out looking for food, even like the ravens. They don't make clothes for themselves. They are totally dependent on God's provision for all that they need and all that they are. Dependent on God for the rain, for the nutrients from the soil, for the sunshine. And he provides abundantly, and he adorns them with the beauty that surpasses Israel's most magnificent king. And then Jesus again argues from the lesser to the greater, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Grass is often used in the Old Testament as an example of the transitory nature of life. Here today, gone tomorrow, one day it's green and growing, the next day it's burned up. Flowers would be in that same category. But that's not who you are. That's not who we are. We're not temporary. We're not transitory. 
We have eternal life in Christ. We will live forever in the presence of God. And if God provides for such seemingly insignificant and transitory part of his creation, flowers and grass, don't you think that he will take care of, provide for, feed, and clothe one of his children who will be with him forever? Of course he will. And Martin Luther of the Reformation, not the Civil Rights Movement. Martin Luther said of the lesson of the flowers, it seems that the flowers stand there and make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers, you who are to be devoured by the cows. God has exalted you very highly that you become our masters and teachers. Flowers don't worry. God provides for the flowers of the field. He will certainly provide for us. Now, Jesus is not advocating a let go and let God kind of mentality where we sit around doing nothing, waiting for the Lord to drop a double-double animal style in our lap. (laughs) Scripture is clear about this. We're to be wise in planning for the future. We're to work diligently following the example of the ant. In fact, if we are intentionally not working, providing for our needs, and the church is not supposed to help us. That's Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. It's not an encouragement to not work or some kind of sanctified welfare program. God provides for our needs providentially, through natural means, and usually that's through our effort, through our work. Flowers can't work, but you can work. Most of us can work. So work. Work hard. Work diligently. Plan wisely, but don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't waste and strangle your life obsessing over outcomes that you have absolutely no control over. And then, Jesus takes us to the cause of our worry. This is a very convicting statement at the end of verse 28. So, I want to do that mark thing where you complete the sentence here. What does Jesus say at the end of verse 28? O you of little... Work. O you of little faith. That's really the heart of the problem, isn't it? When we continue to worry, if we're anxious about anything in this life, it's because we have little faith. We don't believe God. We don't trust Him. We don't believe all the promises and assurances that are in His Word. We don't believe He's actually sovereign. We don't believe He's in control of all things. We don't believe that He's capable of taking care of us providing for us. We don't believe that he causes all things to work together for good, for our good and his glory. We don't believe that he will meet all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, and we have little faith in the assurance that Paul gives in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's the problem? This is why we worry. This is why we're anxious. This is why we fear the future, because we have little faith. God has saved us through the gift of his Son, and after all that God has done for us, after all that we've seen God do for others, after all the times we've seen him be faithful in fulfilling his promises and actually providing for the needs of his people and for our needs, we still don't believe. We still have little faith. It's as though in our worrying, our lack of faith, we're calling God a liar, and that's sin, and we should be ashamed, and we should be grieved by our worrying, and we should repent. Then Jesus doubles down 
on his previous command not to be anxious about food and clothing. He gives another negative command about what his disciples are not to do in verses 29 through 30. He says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Don't obsess over, don't focus your attention, energy, effort, and desire on the material needs of this life. Then he again says, nor be worried. That's how the ESV translates the Greek word here, but it's a different word from the word used three times previously, meaning worry or anxious. The Greek word here can mean don't worry, but it's used mainly to describe the condition of a ship on the high seas being thrown back and forth and driven off course. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, what he's saying to you and I is, don't be undecided. Don't waver. Don't vacillate. Don't be tossed back and forth between faith and faithlessness, confidence and fear, trust and doubt that God will provide for you. It's a counter to the previous statement that we have little faith. So, have faith. Trust in God. Don't waver. Believe God. Believe His Word. And then Jesus gives us two more reasons why we shouldn't strive after the temporary needs of this life. First, because that's what the nations of the world do, and what he means is the unbelievers. That's what unbelievers set their hearts on. That's what unbelievers strive for. They worry about food and drink and clothing, material needs, possessions, temporary things, always striving for more, never content with what they have, always seeking an increase in stuff, newer, bigger, and better. The world, unbelievers are very much like the foolish farmer always acquiring and accumulating more than necessary, pursuing excess, filling their barns, their closets, their garages, their storage units, filling their pantries and their bellies. That's, that's what the unbelieving world does, thinking that their safety and satisfaction, fulfillment and protection in all of their possessions. So don't be like them. Don't be like the unbelieving world. Life is more than that. But because they don't know Christ, because they don't know God as Father, because they will not inherit the kingdom, they think that this is all there is, so get all you can while the getting's good, and they're not entirely wrong. Because for the unbeliever, this brief life is as good as it's ever going to be for them. God does not promise to provide for their needs. He does not promise to cause all things to work together for their good. So they might as well pursue their best life now because their eternity will be horrible. That's not who you are. That's not who we are. That's not what our future looks like. So don't be like the unbelieving world. And the second reason Jesus gives for not striving after or setting our hearts on these things is because God, our Father, He already knows what we need. He knows exactly what we need. He knows better than we do ourselves because He knows all things. He's omniscient and He's infinitely wise. Our perception, our understanding is tainted by the sins of pride, greed, envy, we think we need things that we don't actually need, and our understanding is so limited that we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment anyway, but God does. Our Father knows. So don't strive after those temporary things. Your Father knows what you need, and He'll provide. Now, up until now, Jesus has been telling the disciples, He's been telling us what we shouldn't do. Don't worry, don't be anxious, don't strive after, don't set your heart on, don't be tossed back and forth, don't waver between trust and doubt, don't be like the world. Now he takes a positive turn and gives us instruction in how we should orient our thinking, what we should do, along with a couple of wonderful promises, and this is the cure for worry. 
Verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Slightly better translation would be keep seeking. So keep seeking his kingdom. Be seeking his kingdom all the time. Keep striving for his kingdom. Keep setting your heart on his kingdom. Okay? So what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we seek the kingdom of God? If we're seeking the kingdom of God, we are striving for Christ's rule and reign in our hearts and the hearts of those around us and in the world. We are seeking to know Christ more deeply, more fully, by immersing ourselves in his word and being constantly before him in prayer. We are striving to love Christ more, to love one another more, to love the lost more. We are seeking to deny ourselves, our will, our wants, and our desires and we're seeking to follow Christ more closely, to obey his commands fully and joyfully, submitting to his lordship. We're living for his pleasure and glory and not our own. We're seeking his kingdom by striving to share the gospel at every opportunity, always pointing everyone to the love, the hope, the joy that is in Christ and the goodness of his lordship. We seek to be used by him to bring more people into his kingdom. We use our time and talent, our gifts, our resources to pursue God's eternal kingdom agenda and not our temporary worldly agenda. We invest our money, not in acquiring more stuff to enrich ourselves, not in nicer cars and homes, but we invest in the local church and in missions in order to fulfill the great commission and take the gospel where it has not been preached. We invest in serving others and saving souls, not growing our bank accounts and our stock portfolios. And I believe it means that we continually pray for and anticipate Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom on earth, his rule and reign from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. That's what it means to seek the kingdom of God and in no way are we able to do this on our own or by our own willpower and determination. We seek his kingdom by his power, his enablement. We seek his kingdom by the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit working in and through us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We seek his kingdom by his grace. Now, the truth is, we probably all need to do some serious self-reflection, self-evaluation here. Are we seeking the kingdom of God? Are we as a church, individually or corporately, truly seeking the kingdom of God? Are we striving for Christ's rule and reign over our lives and in the world? Is this what we devote all of our resources toward? Or are we seeking our own enrichment, our own kingdom. Think about that. Then Jesus assures us that not only does our Father in heaven know exactly what we need and what's best for us, but he has promised if we're seeking his kingdom to give us what we need, these things will be added to you. In other words, as Paul states in Philippians 4:19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every single thing that we need, God will provide. Not just the basic necessities of life, but every need. Nothing is left out of every need. If God has determined that you need a car, he'll provide a car. If he's determined that you need to get married, he'll provide a spouse. If he has determined that you need a better job, he'll provide. If God has determined to heal you from cancer, you'll be healed. But if he has determined that you don't need these things, then he won't provide them, and he knows what's best. Not you, not me. And then Jesus continues in verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to fear for anything that may come our way in this life 
or not having what we need. Because as believers, we belong to the Lord's flock. We're his sheep. He's our good shepherd, and he loves us. He cares for us. He watches over us. He protects us, feeds us, nurses us back to health. He rescues us when we go astray. He lifts us up when we fall, and his care and attention for us never fails. He is always faithful to fulfill his promises to us, even when we are unfaithful. And then Jesus assures us that God is our Father, and he's already given us the kingdom. That means everything. Everything belongs to God. Everything is under his authority. Everything in the kingdom is already our inheritance in Christ. We experience many of the benefits of the kingdom here and now, but we will fully realize our inheritance when Christ returns or we are taken home. When we pass from this mortal life into eternity and are transformed in glory from paupers to princes, when we see Jesus face to face, joint heirs of the kingdom of God in and with Christ, ruling and reigning with him, with Jesus for all eternity, it's that eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison that the apostle Paul speaks about. And knowing that that glorious future is guaranteed should free us from our fear and worry in this life. It should free us from our attachment to and the desire for the lesser temporary things of this world. It's the Father's pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's not given begrudgingly or out of obligation. It pleases the Father to give us the kingdom, and he already has. And then Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, it's unlikely that Jesus is advocating that we literally get rid of everything that we have so that we're unable to provide for our needs. He's actually using hyperbole to make a point. And the point is, because God is sovereign, because he loves you and will take care of your needs, because you have nothing to worry about or fear, you should be using the gifts that God has blessed you with to serve and help others, especially the poor, the less fortunate, the needy. Invest in those things that have eternal significance and value. Invest your resources, your finances, your time, talent, energy in people meeting their physical needs, but more importantly, invest in gospel work, meeting their spiritual needs by pointing them to Christ, sharing your material goods and sharing the gospel, walking alongside them, bearing their burdens and helping them to know, worship, and follow Jesus. It's another means and encouragement to seek the kingdom. And it's how we lay up treasure in heaven. And if you lay up treasure in heaven, you might not have much here in this temporary time of life, but you will have what you need. And in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, you will be rich, you'll be wealthy, you'll have treasure. And the greatest treasure is Christ. And then he finishes up this portion of his message with the real point of the whole section, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure is in heaven, your intellect, your will, your emotion, your heart will be focused there on the things of God. And if that's the case, then your heart will be at peace. You will be free from worry and anxiety, free from fear, because your treasure is safe and secure. So to close, what has Jesus taught us? First was the command not to be anxious, not to worry, not to be fearful about the things of this life, earthly, temporary needs, what we'll eat, what we'll wear, houses, relationships, jobs, health, other earthly concerns. Don't do it. 
Don't worry about those things. Then he gives the correction for worrying. First, we see God our Father provides for the lesser parts of his creation, so he'll certainly provide for his people, for his children, who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and adopted into his family. Number two, don't worry, because worrying accomplishes nothing. It's useless. Worrying can't add the smallest measure to the length of your life because God has already determined the length of your days. Third, don't seek, don't strive after, don't set your heart on these earthly things because that's what unbelievers do. So stop acting like unbelievers. Fourth, our Father in heaven knows what we need better than we do, and because He's a good and loving Father, He will give us what we need. Jesus also tells us that the cause of our worrying, our fear, is because we have little faith. We don't believe what Scripture reveals about God, and we don't believe in the promises that God has made to us. And finally, the cure for worry is to remember and believe that God has already given us the kingdom, all of its benefits and privileges. So reorient your thinking. Develop a kingdom mentality. Develop a heavenly mindset. Seek, set your heart on, strive for the things above, eternal things. Invest your time, your energy, talent, gifts, money, material resources in gospel-focused people work, laying up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Set your heart on heaven. Be rich toward God, don't worry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are a good and loving Father. Thank you for the fact that you have saved us and for the promise that you will provide for all of our needs in Christ. Thank you for the fact that you have given us the kingdom, that we have a hope and a future in Christ. And just pray that you would Strengthen our faith, our trust in you. Help us to live lives seeking your kingdom and your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.